Um, well, a few chapters away from part three, so I'm, I'm going to do four chapters on this episode, and part of this episode will be part of part three, so here we go with the first chapter of this episode. At least they killed enough for my well-being to stick me in solitary. Though, even when I wound up next door to someone I'd put away, Marty the Mute, at least he made the place a little quieter. Sometimes we'd play hangman by passing a slip of paper back and forth through an elven. I lost every round. It made me wonder who else Marty might have been if I made the effort. Otherwise, there wasn't much to do in my cell besides sit and steam. Sarah's betrayal was like a gut punch. The best memories were the hardest to cope with. Walks on the beach, elbow rides through the Everglades, trips to Niagara Falls, New York City, Yellowstone Park, out Tanton now. We started in love and round up strangers. Wasn't it supposed to be the other way around? I was deep into a set of prison cell push-ups when a flabby corrections officer with bad skin announced I had a visitor. My first thought, Sarah had come around, wanted to talk things through with me before she set their official record straight. I saw in a flash already. I was to forgive her, even if she never forgave me. Forgave me. And yes, I'd done plenty that needed forgiving. I walked out a short speech in my head as the CEO led me to the visiting area. I let her know that she had my attention now. I understood who I'd been, and I wouldn't be that person anymore. I was done playing fast and loose with our running vows, with with the policeman's oath of honor, with every promise I'd ever made. Whether we stayed together or split, I'd love and cherish her, for which or poor, in sickness or in health, until the end of my days. But it wasn't Sarah I found waiting for me. It was Defoe, Vincent's right-hand goon. One look at him, and I forgot all about my little mean bar. I was sinning. I was spinning mad again, angrier at Sarah than I'd ever been before, like we'd set up this rendering and She'd set Defoe in her place. Defoe, the ugliest man on two feet. All pocket marks and scars. Oil and dandruff. I've seen bodies in every state of decomp. But I always had a hard time looking Defoe in the face. He gave me a little nod as I took my seat. I nodded back. The thick prison glass between us seemed to magnify his deformities. We reached for her hand, 
released four handsets at the same time. Default got white down to business. Our, our mutual friend is very displeased with your current situation, he said. He had an unnerving way of talking through his thin smile, almost without moving his lips. He couldn't come here and tell me himself. I said, I assume you're joking. It's good to see you still have your sense of humor. You will need it in the days ahead. Of course, how many days you have left depends to a large extent on what you say now. How many days I have left? I mean behind bars. Defoe wasn't the brightest, but he had too many years experience to threaten me outright in a state-run faculty where any and all conversations might be recorded. You're a lawyer now, I asked. A lion The way I felt just then, I could have plowed my fist through the glass and squeezed his neck until his nasty head popped. What, what is it you want, I asked. I want to look you in the eyes and know the truth. About what? Are you guilty as charged? How do you think I'm going to answer? How you answer doesn't matter. Your eyes still tell me what I need to know. I, I sucked it up, leaned forward until my nose was touching the glass, and let him have a good, long look. No, I said. His smile got a little fatter. So far, so good, he said. But I'm going to need more. Like what? An alternative theory? More importantly, a name. I didn't have to think it over. I knew what I was going to say as soon as I saw him sitting on the wrong side of the glass. The cook, I said. The cook? That's a bit close to home. Doesn't change the facts. Acting on her own. Or at your behest. On her own. See, now that's interesting. I heard that she was employed as the cook at your instincts, and that cooking was only half of her job. The other half involved reporting to you. That's a story, I said. Nothing more than a story. He pulled back in his chair, crossed his legs, and rested his hands on his top knee. Convince me, he said. My eyes aren't convincing enough. In a word, no. So what proof do you have to offer? Will an eight-hour confession do the trick? I told him about the long drive from Down, Texas, back to Tampa. Hours of several slithering and saying she hadn't meant to kill him, that it had started as self-defense and ended in blind rage. He touched her one time too many. It was more than she could take. 
I said she kept going on and on about how sorry she was, about how a lifetime of good works would never make up for what she done. I have to admit, I sounded damn convincing. Part of me hoped they were recording this conversation. It would give any joy a that dose of visible doubt. The other part of me was imagining Sarah's first and final encounter with Vincent Costello. She was so sorry that she ran away, Defoe asked. Even the guilt-ridden half-survivor instincts. What was, what was she doing with your knife, the fact that she had it on or suggest premeditation. It suggests he picked her far guy in advance. I started to say something vague about self-protection, then dropped it. Sarah wanted to send me away for life. What did I care if Vincent took her for a cold-blooded killer? Maybe she did, I said. On our marriage peaked with the honeymoon. Since then, it's been non-stop combat. Maybe she saw her chance to kill two birds with one knife. Default quit smiling, which did nothing to improve his looks. Your story rings true, he said. The unfortunate victim had a reputation for being handsy, to say the least. And based on the little I know of, of you, it isn't hard to imagine that your wife would wish you ill. So what now? I'll pass on your portion of events. We will see what the man on the throne has to say. Any predictions? Depends on his mood. I will try to catch him during his after dinner cigar. I'd rather you didn't wait until after dinner. Sit tight, Detective Ross. You will have words soon enough. I watched him walk away, then sat there until a guard tapped me on the shoulder. I like to say that I felt remorse or sadness, but that would be a lie. Back in my cell, I beat Maudie at Hingman for the first time. The what I guessed was doomsday. Okay, guys, um, if you enjoy, if you enjoy, uh, audio book, this podcast at your book with Justin, please email me at justin.david.hibbard at gmail.com. Thanks, guys. Now back to the program. Chapter 2 of this episode. Let's begin. I'm not sure what it says about me that I wasn't hungover. Probably nothing good. At almost 10 a.m., Sarah was bringing herself to life with a long, luxurious bath. I'd calmed down for our breakfast and, more importantly, coffee. Meanwhile, I took the morning paper out onto the balcony in my previous life. It was always Anthony who read the paper. He called it his morning quiet time. Now I was claiming my time. Sliding back into the big, bad ward I'd been locked out of for so long. The sky was 
bright and clear. The air just warm enough for me to sit outside in my bathroom. The smell of horse manure mixed with the softer odors of baking bread and frying eggs. I set the paper on the table, flipped past the force blades, and went straight for the fluff, fashion and film gossip and real estate. It felt like the kind of day, the kind where you linger and mingle and keep the mood light. But then there it was. A slim sidebar on page seven, a story that would turn our lives upside down and give them and give them a hard shake. The headline said it all. Disgraced detective set free on five million bail. I waited until my breathing slowed to a semi normal rate, then read through to the end. There was a lot of speculation about who had such deep pockets. I could have solved that mystery. The question was why? Why was Uncle Vincent backing a cop who'd been caught red-handed holding the weapon that murdered his nephew? But case scenario, at least for us, Vincent wanted seen outside so he could snatch him up and take his time. I had no trouble believing that Vincent would pay five million dollars for the pot for the privilege of Anthony Anthony's model Anthony's model himself. Mano a mano. Worst case scenario, Sheen had powers of persuasion I'd never noticed. He'd convinced Vincent that the knife was a plant. There was no way Vincent would let himself be convinced unless Sheen showed him another killer. And Sheen only had three options to choose from, Sarah, Serena, and me. I was spinning back and forth, trying to figure out which scenario was most likely when the fence doors opened behind me and Sarah came strolling out with her paper straight, balanced professionally on one palm. I don't think coffee ever smelled this good, she said. You must not have heard the knocking. The bath had done wonders for her. She'd woken up looking green around the gears and pear everywhere else. Now there was color in her cheeks again. A bounce to her step. She seemed weightless, ready to burst into song. Then she saw my face. Oh, honey, she said. I know I only just got here. But we both agreed we can't be seen together until after the trial. Last night was risky enough. It isn't that, I said. Then what's the matter? She sat the tray on the table, blushed, or stood damp pale back, behind her ears, and rested a arm, and rested a hand on my shoulder. Don't tell me the drinking did you in, she said. That isn't the Anna I know. I just held up the paper and pointed. She hadn't made it past the headline before she dropped into her chair and let out a sharp whimper. Oh my God, she said. I know, but who? I'll give you one guess. Vincent? I nodded. But why? That's the five million dollar question. Coffee, she said. I need coffee. I filled out cups while she went on. Her face going from ruddy 
to Vincent. You think Vincent will kill him? She asked. I was impressed. She seemed genuinely concerned and not for herself. Life in prison was bad enough for or soon to be ex. She drew the line at capital punishment. The clinical side of me thought that's reversed. That's reserved for other people's husbands. But this wasn't the time for a camp fight. Consider the alternative, I said. My erstwhile uncle and law won't be satisfied until someone stops breathing. Seeing was framed, reframed him. Maybe he figured it out and made Vincent a believer. Sarah lifted the lid off her egg flooring and set it back down without so much as glancing at a plate. Then she took a little tour of the balcony, running her hand absent-mindedly along the railing. She looked as though she'd lost her wits. It never ends, she said. You turn what you think is the final bend, but the world just goes on and on and on. Oh, it will end, I told her. Everything does. The question is, how will it end? And whether or not there will be anything left for us afterward. She sat, she sat back down, her eyes glassy, her mouth hanging open. What are you going to do? She said. What in the world are we going to do? Before I could answer, bells started going off somewhere in the room behind us. Long, short, long, short. It was the ringtone on my phone. Only one person knew the number. That's Serena calling, I said. Not sure yet whether I had the will to answer. Sarah sprang up. I'll get it, she said. I haven't talked to Serena in ages. The phone's on my nightstand. I followed her inside, watched her lunch across my bed, grabbed at the phone, knocked it to the floor, and then go scampering after it on hands and knees. Serena, she said, Serena, are you still there? Put it on speaker, I said. She fumbled for the button. The voice that filled the room wasn't Serena's. She's sitting right here, and then said, Would you like to speak with her? Default, I recognized his naturally voice. Remembered telling Vincent that his right hand man sounded more like a librarian than a killer. Seeps clothing, Vincent said. It sounded like a warning. I thought now that maybe it was. Sarah, Serena said. Whatever you do, don't before snatch the phone back. It is it Sarah I'm speaking with before said? I thought this was Anna's line. I started to answer, but Sarah beat me to it. It's Sarah, she said. And if you hold on, I swear to God, I I'll Feisty, before God off. Just like your beloved aunt. She's here too. Want to say hello? Sarah clutched at her chest. I hoped to hell she'd remembered her insulin. Don't you listen to a word this cadaver says, then she yelled. He's using us as bait, and I won't. As you can tell, the gang is all here, Defoe said. I thought I'd invite you to the party. 
Shadow looked up at me from where she sat slumped between the beds. It was clear she'd reached the whole limit. We wouldn't miss it for the war, I said. You need us to bring anything? Do my ears deceive me? Or is that the widow, Costello? Hello, Defoe. How's life as Vincent's trained monkey? I'll be so brave, he said, at least from a distance. Last time I saw you, you were fleeing the scene of an accident. You're lucky I didn't call the police. Thanks for that. Now about this little Cinder. Here's the deal. It's a kind of surprise party. At least we want the location to be a surprise. He told us to pull up outside Nancy's house at 8 o'clock p.m. on the dot. There would be a black sedan parked at the club. We were to follow it to what he called the party house. Needless to say, any sign of an uninvited guest or guests and the evening will end very badly for your friends. With that, he hung up. The room went as quiet as a crypt. Two chapters away from part three. Now, part three. Are you ready for the third chapter of this episode? Let's begin. Slow down, Anna said. We won't make the flight if you get pulled over. I, I took my foot off the gas until the speedometer hit. 70. A compromise you'd have to live with. We need to call the police, Anna. This is way, way, way above our pay grade. We're dealing with professionals here. Anthony was a professional, she said. A professional accountant. That's what it said on his tax returns. But there was more to Anthony than numbers. We took him down didn't we? Her sense of calm was only inflaming my panic. I wondered what kind of chill pill she'd taken. Probably a benzo or four. I thought maybe I should ask her to sell. We had, we had supplies on our side then. I argued Vincent's men know we're coming. They have Serena and Nancy hostage. The police We'll get them killed. And we won't? No, because we will have supplies on our side again. What are you talking about? I wanted to scream. It's not your aunt. I wanted to scream. It's not your aunt with a gun to her head. I know where they are, she said. Her voice neutral and detached as if she was practicing to be a hip, hip, Hypnotist, you 
clairvoyant now. Is that it? No, ma'am. I just have a good memory for sounds. You didn't hear that chiming in the background. The floor had to raise his voice to talk over it. I tried replaying the car in my mind, but I'd been too frantic to pick up on anything past Defoe's instructions. Anthony hated that clock, Anna said. What clock? The grandfather clock in his uncle's country getaway. It was so damn loud you could hear it. Two floors up in the attic bedroom where the eyes slipped. Kept Anthony awake all night long. There was something haunting about it, he said. I think he believed the place was literally haunted. Yes, you're saying that's what they have Aunt Lindsay and Serena and Vincent in Vincent's cabin. I wouldn't call a four thousand square foot home a cabin, but yeah, that's what they. But yeah, that's what they are. Hold up. I thought it over while I darted in and out of traffic, one hand hovering. Hovering over the horn, maybe she was right, but I couldn't see how it changed anything. All the more reason to call the cops, I said. They can swoop in there now. Vincent's men won't know what hit them. Hell, they are probably napping, saving their energy for the for the big night. Anna snickered. Hard to believe you were married to a cop for all those years, she said. One bad apple doesn't mean, oh please, the whole damn tree is rotten. Any doubt I had was a waste when Sheen showed up at the Speedy Motel. Comment when one and Vincent would know about it before you hung up the phone. Her energy was picking up now. She sounded a little less sedated, a lot more determined. So what do we do? Storm the place? I asked. Just the two of us? Get ourselves killed along with Aunt Lindsay and Serena. I took my eyes off the world long enough to see what Anna was grinning. We don't need to storm the place, she said. For once, we can use Vincent's paranoia against him. I was desperate for her to cut to the chase. Enough with the riddles, I said. What do you have in mind? She let her head fall back against the headrest, a sure sign that she was about to take her time. Back in the day, Anthony wanted to impress me. He sent flowers to the city's little bungalow where I still lived with my parents. He took me whale watching in a helicopter. He even cooked for me, if you can picture that. And he let me in on family secrets. Um, taking family with a, I'm talking family with a capital F. We'd only been dating a month when he brought me to one of the infamous Costello retreats at Vincent's Backwards Select. I was peacock proud. I couldn't believe it. Anthony Costello wanted to show off, wanted to show me off to his family. Like I was surprised, like he was sure this little bumpkin from Jackson would make their jaws drop. All three career criminals 
at the top of the room. People who hold baseball teams and gadgets and and penthouses around the globe. I thought enough with the last two witches were gone, but trying to speed all up would only slow her down. Anthony and I got there early. He wanted to show me around the grounds, but grounds he meant a thousand acres of Florida windowless. Like I said, I grew up in the sticks, but I'd never been much of a country club, especially not Florida country. Live oak and cypress swamps, alligators, and indigo snakes. Flow in a broken down plantation house, and we have got the set for a slasher movie. But now I had my man to protect me. He led me down this windy overgrown trail for what felt like miles, though. I don't think it could have been. I'm not sure how many acres are in a mile. Anyway, we got to a spot where the trail was blocked by an enormous moss-covered log. I was ready to climb over it, but Anthony held up my hand. He said he wanted to show me something, told me to stand back. I watched him crouch down like a swimmer whistle and set both hands on that log. Then he pushed and heaved and grunted until he turned red in the face and there was split flying out of his mouth. The thing didn't budge, but he kept on trying, like nothing short of a honia would stop him. I thought, what the hell are you doing? But since we weren't married yet, I only said, want some help? He stepped back. Go on, he said. Give it a try. Maybe a woman's touch would do the trick. Pushing solo wasn't what I had in mind, but I could tell something was up. So I played along. I crouched down just like he had, laid my hands where he laid his, and shoved it with all my might. Well, the thing rolled right away, and I nearly did a fat, and I nearly did a fish plant. It couldn't have weighed more than a pound or two. Meanwhile, Mafia boy was laughing his tonsils out. I was mad as hell, but I laughed along with him. Because that's what you do when you think you might be in love with someone you barely know. Then he stood up straight, stopped, laughed, stopped laughing, and pointed. There was a square of blue top on the ground where the log had been. He pulled it back and revealed a round steel door like the kind you'd see on top of a submarine. He grabbed the handle, twisted, and pulled. My uncle had this put in, he said, in case the wrong people came visiting. I stepped forward and took a look. There was a shiny metal ladder leading down into the dock. Anthony told me to think of it as a shortcut, then said, After you, I damn near had a full-blown panic attack. Are you crazy? I said before I could stop myself. I'm not climbing down into that black spider pit. He told me to relax. My uncle thinks of everything. He said he reached his hand down under the wall once and flipped a switch. 
to hold it up and the one was see he said Uncle Finch even flees in style. He told me he told me the trail ended at the country world. Vincent had a car hidden in the bus. A BMW which for him was slumming it. Was slumming it. So shall we? he asked. We climbed down. The tunnel was made of poured concrete. It had tracked by me. I swear to God, the thing was climate controlled, not a spider in sight. If we hadn't stopped to have a little fun, we'd have made it back to the house in ten minutes flat. I didn't understand how that was possible given the epic hike we'd taken above ground. But there you have it. The Costellos are magical in the way. The tunnel let you out in the basement. From there, you cross the rec room and take the stairs to the kitchen. We were coming up on the upper. I gave Anna a sideways glance. Let's me up, I said. I crossed the rec room. She flashed a big smile. I will draw you a map on the plane, she said. That was the third chapter of this episode. Are you ready for the last and final chapter of this episode? Let's begin. So there, I was wrong. So there, I was walking up a panted mile long Castello driveway toward a place I never thought I'd see again. Those spine-chilling live oak trees looming on either side. Apart from what moonlight made it through the branches, the place was pitch dark. I had traded places with Sarah in a heartbeat. I had a gym bag strapped to one shoulder and inside. It was the roughly one million dollars I'd raised for Sarah and Serena. I thought about holding back a few hundred thousand, but million has a ring to it, the kind of ring that would get the full celebrating, as Anthony put it. That's one greedy son of a bitch, and if anyone knew greedy sons of bitches, it was my dearly departed besides. If things went according to plan, the foe wouldn't get to keep the gas, and if things didn't go according to plan, it wouldn't be of any use to Sarah or Serena. I was glad I talked Sarah out of calling the cops. In my book, death, even a slow death, beats the hell out of life in prison, and there wasn't any way to sin in the cavalry without putting ourselves on the most wanted list. At the very least, seems old running buddies would want to know why Vincent saw fit to kidnap an unskilled worker and an aging nurse. The notion that Reed Frame's scene was not to look more and more credible. The holes in our story, like the fact that we hadn't exactly given ourselves airtight alibis, more and more glaring. I was glad we hadn't caught the cops, but that didn't mean my knees weren't knocking as I turned a corner into the clearing. 
that surrounded the house. It was just, as I remembered, a log castle in the land of the Alligator. Even back then, I should have known that I was headed for trouble. I took out my phone and checked the time, 7 p.m. An hour before we were supposed to turn up outside Lynch's house. There were lights on in the house. A single sedan popped out front. I figured Defoe had sent an airline to play escort. No way he'd have gotten himself on the off chance. We had caught the cops and broke was too valuable to risk over a car ride. The sedan was the same car I'd won from in the alley. That meant Defoe was inside and had blocked with him. It was always possible they brought back up, but Costello's men generally work in pairs, just like the police. Here goes nothing, I thought as I started across the clearing. I watched for an eye at the window and cracked in the sage. But there wasn't any movement that I could see. Why? Bago keeping watch. This location was supposed to be secret. No point in dragging it out. I walked right up into the porch and rang the bell. Like a trick or treat or a Jehovah's Witness. Then stepped back so that whoever answered had a full view from the side window. It was default. First speaking from behind the curtain. Then stepping through the open door with a handgun pointed at my dog. How? The grandfather, the grandfather clock, I said. That was sloppy on your part. I suppose it was. But now, here you are, as I said before. Always so brave. A fistful of Xanax helps. I held up the gym bag. I came bearing gifts, I said. How thoughtful. Of course, I will need. Of course, I will need to give you a quick search before I allow you inside. I put the bag down. I put the bag down, assumed the position. He squinted into the clearing, then hoisted his gun in his pants and gave me a very thrill search. Enjoying yourself? I asked. Not yet, he said. Later, I plan to have loads of fun. I'm sure you will. There's a million dollars in that bag. And more where that came from. The second part was a lie, but I thought it might stop Defoe from shooting me in the head and taking the money. He picked the bag up by the straps, held it out in front of him. Feels about white, he said, handing it back to me. We will make sure once we're inside, me my well, is your cook? Don't tell me she declined our in our invitation. See when I said you scared her senseless. She's probably checking into a hotel in Oxacawa about now. How unfortunate. I was hoping a bag full of cash might make it a little more fortunate. Let's see where the evening takes us. I followed him inside, down a long entrance hallway, and into the dining room. Blocks was there, leaning against the wall, between two portraits of Vincent and his long-dead father. 
Nimsy and Selena were there, sitting on opposite sides of the table. They each had one hand zip-tied to their chair and the other three. There were empty TV dinner containers sitting on placemats in front of them. I just missed feeding time. The grandfather clock was there too, ticking away as loud as ever. I believe it a mental thing. Thanks for the tip, pal. You guys are right, I asked. Serena nodded. Tell me Sarah's all right, then she blurted out. She's fine, I said. At least they looked healthy for now. Defoe was probably waiting for a full house before he broke out the iron meter. On the table, he said, meaning the bag. I hoisted it up and set it down. You don't think of money as being heavy, but a million dollars has mass. I needed both hands. Now open it, he said. Speaking of having mass, Bork abandoned his tough time lean and came lumbering over. He smelled like garlic and cheap tobacco. I glanced at Serena then Lindsay. They looked numb, curious, and terrified all at once. Prepare to be a whole lot richer, gentlemen, I said. Of course, are you split? It is up to you. If you're not the selling types, there's always pistols at dawn. Quit stalling, Bork said. For a trunk like he was down perspective, I was stalling. According to Grandpa time, it was almost 7.20, and a lone reinforcement should be arriving any minute. If we weren't in sync, the evening would end very badly. Patience, I said, stretching out under the table and tugging the silver back. You will have the rest of your lives to spend this. I spread the flaps apart. Nathan and Gantle at their new fortune. Bork nearly split spit out his gold caps. Defoe played it cool, but I caught a slight tremor in his lower lip. Now, now empty it, he said. I started removing the bundles one at a time, stacking them in careful columns. The clock's ticking seemed to grow louder and louder, as if the sound was coming from inside my head. Any day now, Sarah, I thought. The bag was just about empty. That hideous clock I'd hoped never to hear again struck the half hour. It was getting late, early. There you guys have it. Another four chapters. I'll see you next time. I'll see you next time. For, For more. Bye-bye, guys.